1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out deep into your retirement or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
0: Welcome
2: to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. Uh, my guest uh, this hour is Joe Luby, uh, who is a financial planner and, uh, expert, on, planner and uh, expert, expert on all these areas. So, um, Joe, welcome to the show. Um, Joe,
3: Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be with you.
2: Okay, um, so let's just start off with, with your kind of view of the economy right now. What is your your view about where the economy is, and is it going to be getting better or worse?
3: Well, that's a. I'd love to have my tell you my crystal ball was was still in operation, and I could and I could say exactly where we're going. But uh, I can tell you our our opinion is that we're we're likely to be rocky for some period of time into the future. We've had a you know a tough spell, obviously, the last couple of years, and I don't think that we're quite out of the woods yet and you know we're talking to clients about sort of being aware of that and and knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty still pending that in a lot of areas but primarily in tax uh, legislation that may or may not come this year changes that are already on the books for january of next year and things like that uh, that still are kind of up in the air as to what effect they're going to have on uh, businesses large and small and then ultimately the economy overall
2: what do you think has been the cause of the economic situation we're in today
3: <laughs> again that's that's another one where uh, i'd love to be able to put my finger and pinpoint exactly but i think it's a culmination of a lot of things you have um you know in regards to the to the real estate markets obviously that is a, a huge wide-ranging issue when you have the the mortgage meltdown that we that we went through um you have the banking issue that that really started out as a Kind of a, or it was impetus from from the mortgage meltdown, and so two years ago we had a, a very bad banking situation, and still today, we're seeing the repercussions from that because the banks still aren't actively lending like they were several years ago. Now, in some cases, that's probably a good thing because the reason the mortgage meltdown occurred is a lot of folks were were being given loans that probably shouldn't have had loans, and they're buying houses they really couldn't afford, and there was a lot of creative uh, mortgage wheeling and dealing, if you will, in a lot of markets, and when those, when, when the house of cards, so to speak, started to fall, that had a wide-ranging effect on asset values from the bank's perspective. And then, of course, now it has a huge impact on their willingness to lend. And credit is, has been such a fuel of our economy over the last many, many years that if a small business or even a mid-sized business can't go to the credit markets and get that liquidity they need to keep their engines humming, then you know they start to stall and then you have layoffs and you have less equipment purchases and those types of actions then have very very wide ranging impact on the rest of the economy because folks aren't working they're on unemployment if they if companies aren't making big equipment purchases those companies are hurting and so forth
2: what do you think can be done to uh, get credit flowing more and get the banks to be lending and uh, is it that the banks aren't lending or or there's not loan demand i mean what could be done to get the, the whole credit situation flowing better
3: well, I think, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think in a lot of cases, banks are not lending. They're, they're, uh, they're holding fast to their, to their money because they're looking for the perfect deal. You know, the old, the old joke about, you know, the banks only lend money to people who don't really need it is really uh, true today. You know, they're looking for the absolute perfect credit, uh, the, you know, clients so that they don't have any risk at all almost. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, they would be a little more lenient on that. And, Obviously, to be an entrepreneur and to to start a business and create jobs and and grow a business, it takes a, a little bit of a risk mindset. It takes somebody who's willing to step out of the norm or step out of uh, you know the comfort zone and take that chance on their idea or their company or whatever. And the banks are looking at these saying, "We're not going to take those chances right now. We're going to you know uh, hold on to our cash as much as we can or only lend to the absolute ideal candidates." And so again, you get all these folks that they're in that squeeze that, you know, you got the ones on the bottom end of the scale that probably shouldn't be lent to because they really are, uh, you know, bad candidates for these loans. But you got that middle uh, group that, you know, if they could get the liquidity they need, they're probably going to be fine, and it will allow them to grow and and do what they need to do to survive the tough time. But uh, until until that starts to really flow, it's going to be tough. And we've talked to bankers, and some of them say, you know, we would love to lend, but we just can't find the right deal. But, again, they're looking for that absolute perfect uh, you know. What do you tell
2: clients, uh, either individually or as small businesses, about how to get loans in today's environment?
3: Um, a lot of cases we've seen uh, folks are going to what I would call the alternative uh, market, if you will. In other words, they're not going down to the local banker because they're running into that brick wall. And so they're having to turn to the alternative sources of funding, which is, um, in a lot of cases, friends and family, it's uh, capital raises from venture capital and private equity-type firms, depending on the size of the deal and things like that. So they're having to go outside the normal sort of credit realm and either either do equity deals where they're actually selling off interest in their companies, you know, change for cash, or they're getting uh, other, uh, you know, private partners to come in and, and join their bandwagon.
2: You, you talked about the potential tax change coming January 1st. Uh, what is your guess as to what actually is going to happen, and how are you having pl- uh, clients plan uh, with such uncertainty about the tax situation just a f- uh, two months from now?
3: Yeah, it's very difficult to plan, Jordan. We, you know, as we get closer and closer to the end of the year, it's starting to look less and less likely that Congress is going to to act to make any significant changes uh, to the tax laws that are coming in January. You know, earlier in the year, a lot of a lot of folks were predicting that, that Congress would come together and they would pass some type of an extension of the Bush, ta- Bush tax cuts, which are scheduled to expire January 1. And maybe even if it was just a one-year extension or something along those lines to sort of continue helping the economy get out of the, the uh, pit that it's in. Um, but now that we're getting, you know, December 31st is in sight. We're in the last quarter of the year already, and nothing's been done, and Congress is uh, – you know, about to go through an election cycle and so forth, and we don't really know what's going to happen on the other side of that. So it's, it's, again, it's becoming less likely that they're going to actually get any kind of significant legislation passed that will make big changes in January.
2: So if there was no change, if, in fact, the tax increases do go into effect January 1st, first of all, what would be the impact on the overall economy? And second of all, how would you having people plan for that?
3: Well, I think the overall impact I think will be negative because you you've got the tax rates are going up immediately right there. There's more money out of people's pockets and people are feeling pinched already. The 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 general American consumer, you know, their citizen is feeling pinched and tight and, and in some cases fearful of of uh, you know the economy and their, and their business future and things like that. Um, you get a lot. Of, obviously, our unemployment rate is still at such a very very high level right now. Those folks are hurting. So if tax rates go up, then that's automatically more dollars out of our pockets than we have today to spend. So if our spending is is down now and we're having trouble feeling financially secure today, it's going to be a lot worse come January, February, March, and so on, when even more is taken out of our uh, you know out of our pockets. So I think it'll have a negative effect overall. In terms of counseling clients, you know we're looking at what types of things can we do today in the last quarter to at least prepare. You know, you can't get around the rates. Obviously, when they come, they come, and if you have somebody who just happens to be in that, if they're a high-income earner or or a business owner with significant profit, um, they're going to get hit with those higher rates. But what can we do now to either offset some of the future problems they might have, and that could be Roth conversions and a a lot of charitable giving, a lot of things along those lines. Um, Are you recommending that people take capital gains
2: this year when the rates are going to be lower? I'm sorry? Are you recommending that people take capital gains in 2010 when the rates are lower.
3: Yes, I mean that's a great example. You've you've got a capital gains rate that's essentially the lowest we've ever had and not likely to be this low again any time in the near future. And so absolutely, on a case-by-case basis, we're looking at clients that do have assets with significant gains in value and seeing, okay, where can we go ahead and convert this asset to cash? It could be stock. It could be mutual funds. It could be real estate, whatever it is. And let's take the hit. At the 15% rate, because um, if we wait, we don't know what the value is going to be down the road. But we do know that the tax rate is going to be a lot higher.
2: So, do you think that's going to happen? There'll be a lot of tax loss selling, well, uh, even in this case, tax gain selling, I guess you might say, in December, as people go for those lower capital gains rates.
3: Yes, there is. In fact, I mean, we already know of, of a lot of transactions that have happened to the you know prior to this point this year, um, specifically for that purpose. We know, you know, we've talked to a lot of practitioners who have who have implemented capital gains transactions, you know, sale transactions with clients so that they could lock in these lower rates. And you think about it, for, for folks that are real estate investors, for example, they can't wait till December like a stock investor could um, to sell and, and lock in the capital gains. So they've had to start taking action earlier in the year to get the property on the market and, you know, go through the process to get it closed. But absolutely, I think that's going to be a, a key strategy this year.
2: And how about in the estate planning area? Uh, again, assuming... Uh, that the law has not changed, and the, uh, we go back to the future, like we're back to 2001, where uh, we have a million-dollar exemption and a 55% top, top tax rate instead of zero today. Uh, how are you having people uh, plan for that? Is there going to be a mass amount of euthanasia in, in December or something?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's our number one recommendation, but most people don't take that, so we have to go to Plan B. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, the estate tax coming back in, in full swing in January is really going to be an ugly scenario. That's, again, another uh, tax legislation that, as we get so close to the end of the year, it's less and less likely that Congress is going to act. Again, many, many folks in the estate planning realm used to think that Congress would, would, uh, would, in, would act before January 1 of this year. I mean, for years, we've known this legislation was coming for years. Um, We've known that January January 1 of 2010, the estate tax went away. There was no estate tax for this year. But almost every practitioner you could have talked to two, three, four, five years ago would have said, oh, Congress is definitely going to act. They're never going to let the estate tax actually be repealed for an entire year. There's no way. They'll come together and they'll extend the 2009 rates either indefinitely or into 2010 for at least one year. But there's no way they'll let it go to zero. And then lo and behold, January 1 came and the sun rose and all these estate planners woke up and went, oh, my gosh, we really don't have an estate tax all of a sudden. And it caused for a lot of people who didn't plan ahead um, you know, some significant problems because some of the calculations that were built into their estate planning documents and their trusts didn't work in 2010 any longer uh, under those rules. And they just always assumed that the, you know, there would be an extension or something. So you know, fast forward to today, and we're kind of in the same boat. A lot of folks in the estate planning community are saying, well, or have been saying, you know, Congress will act. They're going to extend those 2009 numbers at least one more year into 2011. They won't let it go back to a million-dollar exemption. They won't let the rate go back to 55% and so on. But it's not, uh, you know, very likely at this point that that's going to happen. It's, it's So, it's looking
2: so like what, we may what have would you say, say that they, people should do in that we'll circumstance if they've got, uh, you know, these big estate taxes and they're, are you changing people's wills and so on dramatically to pre- prepare
3: for that? In some cases, we are. Depending on the, the specific client case, in some cases, we are we are having to take some you know uh, major action to, to take advantage of the laws we have today so that when January 1 rolls around, we're not in such a bent position.
2: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joe Luby, uh, who's the founder and management of Jagan Investments, uh, based in Henderson, Nevada. We'll be back.
0: Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of the Money Answers Show. I cordially
2: invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011 on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. uh, who is the president of Financial Solutions, which is a financial planning firm? He's also the founding um, person at Jagan Investments. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you, Jordan. Let's talk a little bit in, in the investment area. Explain how uh, Jagan Investment works. Uh, it's a little bit different from the way most people would be uh, familiar with investments.
3: Certainly, Jagan funds are, are rather unique. They they have the look and feel and flavor of a traditional mutual fund. Um, however they're actually private LLC structures so they're private limited liability companies. we take a, a limited number of investors per fund and then we close the fund so in that regard they 're like a closed in fund uh, except we don 't trade on the on the public exchanges so our clients actually own a, a an interest in a in an LLC that is managed just like a traditional mutual fund would be and we use the big money management firms at, at the, you know the very very top level around the country to do the asset management inside the funds. So people like Capital Guardian and Nuveen and and folks like that actually manage the dollars. And so we can have any type of objective. We can have growth and international and balanced and all the sort of normal investment objectives and and approaches that you would see. But our funds all have specific terms. So it might be a three-year fund, for example, or a two-year fund or whatever. And that means the, the clients have to commit to the portfolio for that term. And it gives the investment manager... Uh, and again, we get access to the institutional side of these firms, not the retail side, so we're getting portfolios and pricing and, and managers and investment opportunities that are not available to the typical retail investor through their you know mutual fund products from the same firm or or whatever and the advantages to the to the uh, managers that we're saying, "Hey, look, this might be a three year fund, for example. We want your true best three year ideas. we don't want you to make ninety day bets and six month bets. We don't want you to have to worry about cash management and liquidations." Uh, people panicking and pulling money out you know with the first bad Monday that they see we want your true best ideas, and we don 't want you to hold big cash positions and have to worry about redemptions because what we saw over the last few years as the market started to have a lot of volatility and, and more more on the downside, more going you know, downhill, people started pulling money out in droves, and what that did to the investment managers, and we talked to a lot of these institutional guys. Uh, about that period of time they said it was very difficult to manage money and said in fact one guy said I wasn't even doing investment management at that point I was doing cash management because they were having to worry about every morning they would come in the office and there'd be a whole nother um, you know several million dollars or whatever of redemptions coming out of the fund so they're having to sell their assets at the worst possible time they're having to sell into a declining market in some cases to illiquid markets and it caused a lot of damage to the rest of the investors in the fund who tried to hang on and, and, and be true long-term buy-and-hold uh, investors. So our funds implement a specific time horizon. It keeps the clients in the fund for that term, and it tells the investment manager, "Hey, we're we're going to let you have your you know uh, have your full term to work on this and not have to worry about redemptions coming up. The flip side to the to that structure is this is where a unique advantage comes into play in the tax side, is that Because the clients own a minority interest in a privately held company, a privately held LLC structure that doesn't trade on the exchange, we have two different values at any given time during the life of the fund. We have net asset value, which is what the client really has in the fund, and that's what their growth and performance is based on. But then we have fair market value, which is a little bit different. Fair market value is basically the value that that person's interest in the Jagen Fund would sell for if they had to go out and find a buyer. If they had to liquidate before the end of the term and sell their shares, sell their units, they'd have to go find a buyer who met all the criteria that had you know, had to be a credit investor and so forth to be in the fund. And what price would they agree on? Well, generally speaking, uh, the way you determine that is you get an appraiser to do evaluation on the fund uh, shares, and they will take into account things like well, this fund's not publicly traded, so it's not highly liquid. Um, the you know the uh, the term is three years or four years or whatever it might be. Um, it's not a, a actively traded fund, so it's not marketable on any given day of the week. So they have to look at these types of of factors, and they give a discount. So the client might have a million dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars, or two hundred thousand, whatever it is in the fund. But once the appraiser come, uh, appraisal report comes back, they might say, well, their fair market value for reporting purposes is maybe thirty percent less. That's usually about the the average number. So the the advantage to the client is they might have a, a actually have, let's say. $100,000 in the fund for net asset value. That's what their growth is based on. But on paper, their fair market value might only be 70000 That's the And that's the number that they are required to report for any type of taxable transaction. So if they're gifting assets to their kids or grandkids, if they're selling assets to, to special trusts for their estate planning purposes, if they're doing uh, Roth conversions with their IRAs, any of these types of transactions, when they report the value of that asset they're required to use that lower fair market value figure and thus they get a big tax advantage because any tax that would be due on the on the transaction is based on that lower number not the higher number they have in the fund
2: just give people your websites if people want to find out more about how they can find you know more information about this
3: you bet it's it's uh, com.
2: And what are the minimums uh, to get into it? What are the qualifications to be able to invest in this?
3: The, the minimums start at 100000 and go up from there depending on the fund. And the qualifications are accredited investors uh, only, which essentially the definition of that is, is somebody who's made $200,000 in the last uh, two years if they're single, 300000 if they're married, or they have a net worth of a $1 million or more.
2: And what kind of re- return rate of return have you had over the long term uh, using these funds?
3: Well, the great thing about that is since we don't manage the dollars inside of the funds, we, we do the admin side to make sure all the parts move the way they're supposed to. We go out and we hire the best of the best. So we hire, the, again, the capital guardians of the world, for example. This is the same, the same group of uh, folks that manage American Funds' family of funds. So when we bring them on board as the institutional money manager of the assets inside one of our funds, we can go back and look at their track record. And we can show, okay, these guys have been managed money for thirty years, or twenty years, or ten years, or whatever it is in that particular style. And so we. Uh, so you're we doing a blend. You, you have several different money same, managers. Same guys. And you're giving
2: a little bit of money to each of them. Is that the right works?
3: Correct. In in some cases, we'll have an you know entire fund with one firm like that. In other cases, it'll be broken up. But we might have two or three of those types of firms all managing assets from the same JG. Ah, uh-huh. um.
2: So if if you somebody were to bring money to you today, who's wants growth, uh, would you be going more international or domestic? Where, where do you see the best growth opportunities today as to which style would you be giving money to?
3: Well, and that's a great question and I'll tell you, the way we do is we actually leave that particular piece up to the individual's advisor if they're working with a financial advisor because we're we're very advisor friendly. Our funds are designed to be used by the investment advisor community. So we leave those types of investment allocation decisions up to their advisor or the individual, if they if they handle their own portfolio, and then they can just select from from funds that we have available, whichever investment objective best meets their needs. So, for example, we have a an all growth portfolio uh, managed through Naveen, which happens to be about 25% international, 75% uh, U.S. But it's up to the the individual or their advisor to decide. You know, does that investment objective and that model fit them the best?
2: I see. So, uh, as far as your view, though. Um, without you know your specific funds, do you think uh, the best place for growth would be domestically or internationally today? What's going on in the world?
3: Uh, based on what's going on in the world, I would say right now you've got a lot more opportunity internationally than you do domestically. As we talked about earlier, we've still got some challenges here in the U.S. Uh, businesses are still struggling, both large and small, and there's still a lot they've got to, a lot of hurdles they've got to overcome. Whereas in places outside the U.S., you know, from all the Folks, we hear from and talk to. Um, there's just some amazing opportunities in other other parts of the globe.
2: Are, are there particular areas uh, that you would favor the most—Asia versus Europe or South America?
3: Yeah, we would we would look more to the to the Asia or South America side of things. Um, Europe, I think, is is quite a bit in the same boat we are. To a large degree, you know, we would look at places like China and, and uh, India and Singapore, Brazil, and some of these places that have, you know, uh, fairly rapidly growing economies and um, a lot of ramp up in consumer demand. You know, these are these are economies that you know are not at the same level we've been for many many years in terms of consumer demand and and uh, discretionary spending and things like that.
2: One of the big concerns today is these kind of competitive devaluations. Uh, where our dollar is going down because we're pumping out a lot of money, and other countries are concerned that their currencies are going up, like the Japanese and others, and they're pushing their currencies down. Does that concern you that we could get into kind of a competitive devaluation uh, trend around the country, around the world?
3: Well, sure. I mean, just from a if just look at a homegrown standpoint, if we if we uh, you know if our, if our currency continues to be devalued and we we see significant inflation, you know, we've already got. Uh, this crunch, if you will, the American consumer is already feeling crunched in terms of their buying power just from the sheer number of dollars in their pocket. Then you add on that potential tax increase in January, so they've got even less in their pockets. And then you add on top of that that the dollars they have in their wallets don't go as far. And I think you've got a lot of fuel for you know, for at least a prolonged problem or a prolonged uh, you know, period of economic suffering. So, so
2: what would be a better policy... Uh, response, instead of having the dollar depreciate, what would be a better way to do it?
3: Well, I think the first thing would be from a, from a tax standpoint. The government, you know, only has certain things that they can do in their bag of tricks, and one of them is, is of course, tax policy. And right now, the tax policy uh, issue, meaning that we know what we've got coming in January if nothing is, is done about it, is really one of the largest issues that we hear about from business owner clients. They're really, really concerned about the tax changes that are coming and how they're going to address them and how they're going to survive them. And, and then on top okay. of that, you've got the health care surtax coming in a couple of years beyond that. And that seems to be uh, very, very big on folks' minds right now. And if, if Congress okay. can't act jo- jo- that, We're going to take a break. Certain...
2: We're just going to take a break here. Uh, okay. We'll be right back. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is uh, Joe Luby, and we'll be back after this. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011 on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800 707 1634 That's eight hundred seven zero seven one six three four 707 1634 and don't delay because spaces are limited.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Luby, uh, who is the president of Financial Solutions, a uh, financial planning firm, and also uh, the Jagan Investment firm. He is based in Henderson, Nevada. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you, Jordan. We want to talk a little bit more about the estate tax and uh, what people may be surprised if the estate tax does not, the current law does not change, meaning it's going to go into effect on January 1st. What are some things people might be surprised about on that front?
3: Yes, the, I think the biggest surprise is how many additional folks are going to be subject to it that probably don't believe that they have a problem right now. You know, we we talk to people who are here from folks who think, well, you know, estate tax is only for the ultra-wealthy. It's It's for those, you know, deck of millionaires and and things like that it'll never affect me but if the law comes back uh, as it is scheduled to now on january 1st of next year the exemption is only one million dollars and basically what that means is anybody who passes away can leave up to one million dollars worth of stuff to whomever and they they're not taxed on that but every dollar above one million the estate tax kicks in, and the highest rate is 55 percent, and that that rate actually kicks in very quickly after you exceed a million dollars in assets. Well, one of the the things that people don't realize is that the value of their life insurance policies, if they own those policies personally, are included in their estate for these calculations. So a great example is you've got a you know married couple and a couple of kids, and uh, let's say the the husband is the breadwinner, and and they've gone out and they've purchased some life insurance on him in case something happened, and maybe they've got a $500,000 policy or an $800,000 policy or even a million-dollar policy, and he owns it, and they just pay the premiums every year directly. Well, if that person passes away sometime after January of next year, they have an estate tax problem simply as a result of owning that life insurance. So all of of their other assets, 401Ks, IRAs, uh, vehicles, homes, if they have uh, any real estate or other investment property, investment accounts, brokerage accounts, things like that. All of that stuff gets pulled into this estate tax problem simply because they were actually preparing well, and from a financial planning standpoint, they were taking a, a proactive approach and getting life insurance on the breadwinner in the family to protect the, uh, the, the rest of the, the survivors in, in case of a premature death. And, in, in fact, what they've done is put themselves in a the state tax position. Un- I thought that the sta- uh,
2: the life insurance proceeds go to beneficiaries tax-free. Is that correct?
3: That's right. The, the insurance proceeds themselves go to the beneficiaries tax-free and from an income tax standpoint, but the asset value, the total value of those, of those uh, policies, the face value of those policies, is included in the estate tax calculation. And you can actually, the law actually allows for the government to go after, believe it or not, go after those dollars, go after the beneficiary for estate tax if there's not other assets in the estate to pay it. So Let, it's, uh, me, let me take, take it's, an, uh, an
2: example here. Uh, somebody has a million-dollar policy – uh, they die, uh, the million dollars is paid out to, say, their wife or kids, uh, income tax-free, uh, but then there's going to be a huge estate tax because that million dollars push them over the edge and all their 401Ks and all their other assets are then subject to tax, which they wouldn't be if they didn't have that life insurance policy. And, and so where are they supposed to get the money, the 55% to pay the estate tax? It has to come out of the life insurance proceeds is what you're saying, is that Right
3: exactly so in that exact scenario you just described that spouse is now the only liquidity let's assume that that you know they're they have their home maybe a rental property or maybe a vacation property they've got 401k's iras things like that the only liquidity that that she has in that scenario is the life insurance proceeds and so again these are folks who have probably taken a, a proactive step to plan for their financial future and financial needs and all of a sudden they're in the estate tax boat that they never thought would apply to them, and they've got to take some of that life insurance money and turn around and send it to Uncle Sam within nine months of the of the person's passing. So,
2: there's in that a, circumstance, what would you suggest as a financial planner to uh, mitigate that situation?
3: Great question, and that's a again, this is very case by case in terms of how you how you solve these problems. But I'll give you a quick sort of easy example is. In their exist or in their trust, or if they don't have a trust, they you know they can they can set up a trust or a will. They need to be doing that anyway. Um, they can designate a a uh, an arrangement, if you will, where the assets are split appropriately in advance. And so, if you have one person pass away, you're not going to have that issue. The other thing they can do is put the life insurance policy into a special trust on its own, which is called a an irrevocable life insurance trust, or ILIT or ILIT. As the estate planners like to call it because we shorten everything. They can move that insurance policy into that type of trust, um, or buy a new policy in that type of trust, for example. And that way, the entire policy and all of its proceeds are outside of the of the person's estate for state tax purposes. If they're owned in that kind of trust, then it's not their asset when they pass away. So those I are think. just a couple of things they can do. They can. They can uh, so a lot of people probably have not done
2: that and will be surprised, is what you're saying.
3: Exactly, they don't you know right now there's probably a lot of people are going to be surprised, but they don't have to be if they just get some planning ahead of time
2: and then the other big tax that's going to surprise a lot of people is what's called the a m t or the alternative minimum tax. Uh, what is the surprise uh, assuming nothing changes as of January first on the a m t
3: well, effectively, a whole lot more people are going to be subjected to it in fact, uh just today, uh, if the listeners are go out online and and look around some of the you know popular news sites, you'll find uh, quite a few articles that happen to hit today that uh, talk about another, uh, I think it was roughly 25 million is the one I happen to see, people could be subject to the alternative minimum tax than otherwise would if they would extend the the, uh, rules on that as they are today. So that,
2: again, if you're hit with that and you haven't been hit with it in the past, how significant a tax hit could that be to you?
3: It could be it could be pretty significant. Effectively, the the A.M.T. was designed to to keep folks. This is going back you know a couple of decades or more. Um, it was designed to keep folks from eliminating all of their taxable income by only owning tax-free type investments like municipal bonds and things like that, and and escape essentially escape estate tax even though they might have very 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 large incomes and very, may be very 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 wealthy. And so the alternative minimum tax was was uh, implemented to sort of snag those people and catch them so that they would still have to pay an income tax. And it, it basically did away with a lot of the um, exemptions they would have, it did, away, did away with a lot of the deductions they would have, and things like that. And so now you have to actually calculate your tax under both rules. You have to calculate your tax under the traditional income tax rules, and you have to calculate it under the AMT rules. And whichever one is greater is what you pay. And so next year, again, if Congress doesn't act, um, the uh, the way the numbers are written, a whole lot more people, as I said, the article I happened to see today was about 25 million, are going to fall into that trap. Are going to fall into that boat, and they're going to be caught with that A.M.T. And so when they run their tax calculations on their uh, incomes during next year, they're going to have to pay the A.M.T. number, not the regular income tax number,
2: which will be much higher than they're expecting. Correct. And so again, what would you do to plan? to have somebody who now has woken up. And sees this as a possibility. How could you plan uh, for that uh, today?
3: That's uh, now that's even more specific than some of the other ones. Um, there, there are certain things you can do. You can you can accelerate or decelerate in, in some cases um, income recognition that they might that they might receive in a given year, um, so that they don't fall into an AMT problem. You can look at their deductions that they normally take that are going to be subject to AMT adjustments and uh, see if you can tweak those or change those in a given year um but ultimately believe it or not it's one of those areas where there's not a whole lot you can do i mean it's there's a few things you can you can tweak but in general the amt was designed to to catch folks it was designed to to make sure that that uh you know folks that the congress at the time thought weren't paying their fair share got hit with a tax and so it's it's uh Fairly draconian in that regard. In that, is it something really you would put aside reward. bigger
2: quarterly tax payments to prepare for it? I'm sorry? Would you put aside bigger quarterly tax payments to cover for the AMT?
3: Yes, in some cases you'll need to. I mean, in, in, the, uh, in, in certain circumstances, if the business owner is paying their, their quarterlies, um, if, if we know in advance or they know in advance or see, or their CPA knows in advance that they're going to be falling into that trap, then absolutely they need to be putting more into their quarterly payments. Or else they're going to run into an underpayment penalty when they actually go to file their return.
2: So what you're predicting right now is that 25 million people, some huge number, don't realize this is hitting them. They're going to have these enormous tax bills come April. Not only tax bills, but uh, uh, late payments and, and interest for uh, underwithholding or under you know paying under in the quarterly amounts. And and there'll be a lot of unhappy folks in the country. Is that what you're saying?
3: Well, and remember that that rule change goes into effect in January. So really, we're talking about applying to the 2011 tax year and beyond. So that particular uh, piece, you know, we do have a lot more time for Congress um, to act on it. And historically, they have passed an AMT patch. Um, so an AMT patch essentially changed the the uh, numbers so that not as many people would be caught in the AMT. And you know, that's been a pretty standard piece of legislation they've passed, so that's one that I'm a little more comfortable that that uh, will happen. They'll pass that, whether it be this year or sometime into next year, I don't know, but um, just based on their on their history. That I mean, is, is there something that should more. be done
2: long-term to fix this instead of having to patch it every year?
3: <laughs> I, w- I wish they would, and, and so do a whole lot of other tax planners. Uh, th- right now there is no Significant movement in Congress to to put a permanent fix in place. You know, every year it comes up. Every year it's an issue, and then every year at the last minute they pass the patch um, because nobody, at least nobody in Congress, will you know sit down and, and wrestle and, and attack the the overall problem. So I don't see that in the in the near future. But but I wouldn't be surprised if we did get another the patch at least. I think
2: another area is the Roth conversion rules. Uh, Those changed for 2010, and they're going to change again in 2011. What should people know about converting um, money into Roth IRAs?
3: Yeah, this is a great one, Jordan. Actually, it's a complex question.
2: We're going to go to a break, so we'll get to that after the break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joe Luby, uh, who is a financial planner at Financial Solutions uh, based in Henderson, Nevada. We'll get to that Roth conversion question right after the break.
0: Markets up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now toll free, 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
2: Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited.
0: p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joe Luby, uh, who is uh, the head of uh, Financial Solutions, a financial planning firm, uh, also the founder of Jagan Investments. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you, Jordan. We were just going to talk about Roth conversions, and uh, again, tell us what the rule change was in 2010 and how that will change in 2011.
3: You bet. The the Roth conversion is is essentially a, a transaction where People who already have money in traditional IRAs, and those dollars, generally speaking, have never been taxed. So they've put them in, they've taken their deduction, and they've been their contributions, and now they've got growth earnings that has not been taxed. And when they go to pull those dollars out of, the, of those IRAs, those traditional IRAs, they're going to pay taxes in retirement at whatever their normal income rate is at the time that they pull it out. With a Roth IRA, it's sort of the flip side. You pay taxes on the money that goes in to start with, but you don't pay tax on anything you pull out down the road. So you've got essentially a complete tax-free account on all of your investment earnings and growth over the life of the account. And another a significant advantage is that at age 70 and a half, you don't have to take money out of the Roth IRA like you do with a traditional IRA. At, at 70 and a half you have to take distributions. So a lot of folks want the Roth IRA, but they've got all this money sitting in traditional IRAs. And until January 1st of this year – 2010 you could not convert from the traditional to the Roth unless your adjusted gross income was below 100,000 and that was uh, both for single individuals and married folks so you got a married couple both earning 50,000 they were prohibited from doing a Roth conversion well January 1 of this year that rule went away anybody can do a Roth conversion that that wants to this year regardless of their income so you can actually take those traditional IRA dollars move them into the Roth Uh, realm and get that tax-free treatment, the catch is that because all the dollars going into the Roth have to have already been taxed, and the traditional IRA that they're they're converting has never been taxed, there's a taxable event that happens there. So at the time of the conversion, the value of the traditional IRA gets reported to the client from from their custodian, their IRA custodian, and they have to report it as ordinary income and pay the tax on it. So they're sort of buying the right, if you will. They're, that tax money they pay today on that traditional IRA is buying them the right to never pay tax again on anything that Roth IRA earns or grows to for the life of the account and even on to their kids and, and, and so forth if they pass away and leave it to their, to their children or their spouse's beneficiary. A couple of unique things to, to, to know is that if the conversion is done in 2010, not only did the rule change that anybody can do a conversion, but if the conversion happens in calendar year 2010, you have a choice of when you pay that tax. You can either recognize all of the income from the conversion in 2010 and pay the tax on your 2010 income tax return, which you'd file next year, or you can defer it. And if you defer it, the rule is that you get to claim half of the income from the conversion on your 2011 tax return, which you'd file in 2012, and you claim the other half of the conversion income on your 2012 return that you file in 2013. So I know I gave a lot of years just then, but basically you get to defer the tax all the way out, at least half the tax, all the way out to as late as 2013. But that choice of either paying the tax this year or deferring it out for two years, half and half, only applies if the Roth conversion is done in calendar year 2010. If you wait till January of 2011, you can still do the conversion. Anybody can still convert in 2011. The the income uh, limitation rule doesn't change. Anybody can convert 2011, but you have to pay the tax in 2011. You cannot extend it and take that deferral period.
2: Do you normally so, recommend that people do defer the taxes when they do the conversion like that?
3: That's a great question, and this is something that we actually have to run the math on because um, right now we've got the 2010 tax rates, so we have the lower tax rates in place today. and In some cases, it makes sense to recognize all that income in 2010 to take advantage of the lower rate in 2011 when you re- if you if you take the deferral and you and you recognize half of the income in 2011 and then half in 2012 the catch is is that you pay tax at the 2011 or 2012 rates so if it's a case where the, the individual is going to be in a higher tax bracket in 2011 or 2012 they may not want to defer it out they may want to go ahead and recognize it this year at the lower bracket or if they know in advance that they're going to be in a lower bracket in 2011 or lower in 2012 because they, maybe they had a big uh, tax event this year, maybe they sold a property and took a big gain or something like that, or maybe they got a big uh, cash out from, from a retirement plan or something that's, that's uh, separate from the IRA we're talking about, if they know in advance that they're going to have a lower tax year, lower income year next year and, and in 2012, then we'd want to defer it. So, and then you've you got some other little um, math things you can run on. You know, doesn't make sense to hold the dollars now and let them invest for the next couple of years before you have to pay the bill. There's a lot of uh, variables. But basically, you only have that choice if you do the conversion this year. But the great thing about the Roth conversion is it's also one of the only transactions that you get to change your mind on. Because of the way the rule is written is if you convert in a given year, you have all the way until your tax filing deadline, including extensions, before you have to really make up your mind if that, that was a good idea, because you can undo it. So you can go back later on and change your mind and undo the conversion. It's called a recharacterization. So you just go right back from the Roth back to the traditional IRA. It's no harm, no foul. It's as though nothing happened. There's no tax consequence whatsoever. So if you do it this year, you do the transaction to convert this year, you can wait all the way until October 15th of next year. That's your tax filing deadline with your extension. You can wait all the way to October 15th, to make up your mind if you really want to do the conversion or not. But if you don't do the conversion, then you lose that opportunity uh, to decide on, you know, do you defer the tax or not.
2: But in in the so, long run, it's better to have money in a Roth IRA than a traditional IRA, no matter what happens, because uh, you will be tax protected. Whereas traditional IRA, if tax rates go up, you're going to pay more when you take it out anyway. Is that, is that correct?
3: That's right. And and here's the kind of the rule of thumb, Jordan. Generally speaking, and I and I don't like rules of thumb because there's always you know there's always the exceptions, but. In general, the older the person is now and the closer they are to actually using these dollars and pulling them out of the, uh, the IRA to live on or using retirement purposes, the less of a, of a good idea it is. So the younger the person is, the smaller the account, the longer they've got to recoup the fact that they paid the tax up front, the better it is. The, the other scenario that it's great for is folks who are never going to use the money. Maybe they have enough of other assets or pensions and Social Security and everything else that they really don't need to touch their IRA dollars and they want to leave it to the next generation. If, if that's the case, then a Roth IRA is typically a much better wealth transfer type of account than the traditional IRA, so it's a good idea for a lot of them to look at converting as well. But again, as long as they do it this year, they've bought themselves the flexibility to decide later you know, whether they want to leave it converted or not, and they can, they can decide for essentially the next 12 months.
2: Before we close, I just want to make sure people have your uh, website again, uh, both on your financial planning firm and your investment firm, if they want to contact you for further information.
3: Great, yes, thank you. The, for Jagan, it's www.jaganfunds.com. And for our planning firm, it's www.financialsolutionsnv.com. And
2: do you deal with clients all over the country? Yes, we do. So you deal with different tax jurisdictions and so on.
3: Yes, absolutely. And we have we actually have a tax, I meaning CPA and estate planning contacts, kind of literally around the country and every major state and probably almost every state.
2: I just want to end with the real estate, which is such a big topic these days. Um, what, what are you seeing in the real estate market? You have the incredibly low mortgage rates. Are a lot of people refinancing, or, or should be refinancing, or? what what is your expectation of what's happening in the real estate market
3: yeah let me uh, and being from from nevada we've had an interesting perspective on that because our real estate market was, was one of if not the hardest hit and from a local perspective i can tell you that that it's very difficult for folks to refinance simply because their their houses are underwater they owe more than the than the value of the house currently and so they're having a tough time with it but Um, In general, yes, if you can refinance, this is an absolutely wonderful time. You'll probably never get a better rate in the rest of your life. Very good. All right, well, thanks so much.
2: My guest this hour during the Money Answer Show has been uh, Joe Luby. Um, His firm is called Financial Solutions. He's based in Henderson, Nevada. Uh, He also has Jagen Investments, Jagan Funds, and we've covered a lot of very interesting things that you should be aware of uh, coming forward here. So thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Joe. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.